follow your passion, but not be defined by it. You never really know where you're going to go or what's going to come up or what kind of interests are there. So I would say go with what you're passionate about, but be open to other opportunities that may present themselves that you never thought about. And try to say yes as much as you can, because you never know where it's going to go or who you're going to meet or where it's going to lead. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. A Jersey girl captivated by engineering at Dartmouth, Ariel Dowling, pursued her PhD at Stanford, exploring the use of wearables to anticipate and prevent knee injuries. After several experiences at tech-focused startups, Ariel has more recently found a home and apparently a calling as a digital health leader in biopharma. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's show is sponsored by Manat Health. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is helping clients across all industries grow and prosper. So, Lisa. Yes, David. <laughs> any big plans for the holiday this year? Assuming that at this point we're not placed in solitary confinement, if not shackles, um, by the governor. So our family is going to take a trip. We're going to move from the kitchen to the dining room for dinner. We've awesome. decided. Cool, cool, uh, cool. We might venture onto our back porch, but by and large, we're not doing much because we are trying to be compliant. And if everybody would be compliant with the rules, excuse me, around uh, masks and and careful gathering, then we would not be here anymore. So I hope everybody takes heed. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, I, by the way, just as a random aside, I was reading that there's all these people who aren't planning to even get vaccinated once it's available. So it's um, that that we should talk about that in the future because that's uh, that's remarkable. Darwin and, was right. <laughs> uh, I actually wrote a piece about how that's like exactly the wrong way to think about this. But um, <laughs> in any case, um, you. <laughs> All right, so um, we are so happy uh, to welcome Ariel Dowling uh, to the show today. Welcome, Ariel. Hi, I'm excited to be here. All right, hopefully you feel that way at the end of it. Um, so the, uh, <laughs> the daughter of a banker turned homemaker and an entrepreneur, Ariel grew up like most of our guests apparently uh, in New Jersey, Baskin Ridge specifically, exit 36 off 78, by the way. Ooh, um, boom, boom, That's right. <laughs> Uh, having spent time in New Jersey and Westfield, I feel like I'm, um, it's fair game. Um, a, uh, a good I will say though, you know, I can pronounce the three words differently, like all New Jersey, good New Jersey girls. I can pronounce Mary, Mary, and Mary, because those are oh, three nice. different words with three wow. different spellings. So well played. only pronounced correctly in New Jersey. Yes, I too am from Jersey, so we're... Ah, <laughs> go. Linguistic oh, power. My. There we go. Um, so a good student and a talented lacrosse player, Ariel was recruited by and strongly drawn to Dartmouth. Uh, so tell us, Ariel, we're, we're curious, was it the cold or the isolation that was more compelling about Hanover? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? However, both of those things really, really do a lot to create this sense of community and this sense of purpose. Um, and, you know, just like a, like a, 
a community on, on campus, you know, because there's nowhere to go, really. I mean, you're not going to go out. You're not going to leave to go to the next town. Boston's a two-hour drive away. Not, most people don't have cars. Everyone stayed local on campus throughout the entire winter, you know, on weekends. Everyone was there. So there was this really tight-knit community that would, you know, you'd see the same people. It's a pretty small school, only about 4,000 undergrads. And it really, it really fosters a sense of, you know, knowing the people that you're, you know, you're living with, you're working with, you're playing with, everything like that. So I really, that was really what drew me to it was that, that, that really tight sense of community, particularly at the engineering school, because the engineering school was so small. We, you know, we're one of the smallest engineering schools that there is. And it was nice having that like really tight community. So that's what I wanted to get to. So like, I know that you really loved college clearly, and especially appreciated their approach to engineering, uh, which I thought was really just fascinating. What was about how they approached engineering that made it uh, so appealing and so accessible? So Dartmouth really focused on making engineering practical, you know, like not just looking at the theory of it or the theory behind it. So every single engineering class I took had both the theoretical part and then a practical part. So I did a group project, I would say, in probably 75 to 80 percent of my classes. So we would we would learn the theory and then the last couple of weeks would be devoted to a group project focused on what we were learning. So you got to tell us that the what the best group project you know thing you built was. Oh, that's a tough one. Um, you know what? And this is going to get this is going to be a little cheesy, but um, I took my electrical engineering class, and one of the one of the things they focused on again was that accessibility. So a lot of classes didn't have a ton of prerequisites. So this intro to electrical engineering class actually had zero prerequisites. The teacher said, "You know what? If you can count to two, you can do electrical engineering." And so that's what. So a lot of people took it who didn't necessarily have that background, but he taught it such that such that we would all learn the foundations of electrical engineering. And at the end of it, you had to, you had to come up again with a group project. And so at that time I was, uh, I played ultimate Frisbee when I was at, when I was in Dartmouth and I was very into ultimate Frisbee and, you know, living my life, everything I did ultimate Frisbee. Um, and so uh, just like you can play fantasy football, there's a way to play fantasy ultimate when you're, when you're watching and it's, <laughs> you know, it has rules and scoring and things like that. So uh, me and another ultimate player, we built a, a, a fantasy ultimate scorekeeper so you could you know you could hit the buttons and it would do the logic you know behind the that's where the electrical engineering came in and like keep up the counting of the scores for you and get the give the right number of points and things like that and we had to build it with mostly components not so much programming but like the actual electrical components so you could have you had that buttons and things and circuits and stuff you could do like very little programming that was one of the one of Very my favorite cool. projects there. So you mentioned that the program was des- that the two aspects about that really struck me were one, like you were saying it, it really seems like it was um, project based, which I thought was interesting. And then you said it was designed to train, it's so interesting, engineering managers rather than individual contributors. That sounds so different. What, what do you mean by that? Like what was distinct? At Dartmouth, it was required you for you to get a liberal arts degree first. So you, everybody had to graduate with a liberal arts degree. The school was founded in the late 1700s. That was, you know, a thing. So as a result, you couldn't take as many engineering courses as you would at a traditional engineering school like MIT. You had to take a lot more uh, broad-based classes that were, um, again, on that liberal arts focus. So what they did for the engineering program is they said, okay, we're not going to focus as much on, you know, pure knowledge of engineering and pure, again, that pure theory. We're going to say, what do you need to do to be successful as an, in an engineering job? 
And that's where that's where that focus on group projects came in, focus on interdisciplinary dynamics. We had to take an engineering ethics class. That was a requirement, you know, to look at the ethics in engineering uh, and just all the things around engineering that maybe don't get as much into the curriculum, but are very vital to actually doing the job of an engineer after after you've graduated. And so while it wasn't a requirement that you, you know, you could take additional classes and really get that very, very in-depth engineering education, but their thought was, you know what, engineers need not just individual contributors. They need people who can manage teams and understand, you know, interpersonal dynamics and understand how engineering teams fit together. And this is a good focus for our program because they were never going to compete with MIT or Stanford or one of those, you know, like very, very heavy, very um, knowledge-based engineering programs. They kind of took a different focus and as a result, made it very accessible to uh, people who maybe aren't as traditionally involved in engineering. So Dartmouth always had a very high percentage of women uh, involved in the engineering classes because they made it very accessible and didn't require a lot of prerequisites to enter into the engineering track. So you completed Dartmouth in four years with two degrees, a BA and a master's, and then decided you had enough of both the uh, cold climate and the warm nurturing and headed <laughs> off to a, P- to a PhD. See what I did there? Uh, I headed <laughs> off to a PhD in uh, Mechie at Stanford. I'm curious both how you sort of reached that decision and how those experiences compared. And, I, and especially I'd like to hear, after having lived in New Jersey and at Dartmouth, <laughs> And then moving to the to the West Coast, aside from the fact that, you know, people called them purses instead of pocketbooks or whatever, <laughs> what was the biggest, you know, change in, in your in your living experience? There was definitely a lot of culture shock, I have to say. Moving to, moving to California for the entire first year, it really did feel like almost I moved to a different country. You know, it's just such a different culture than the than the East Coast. Um, but, you know, what as I went on in my career, you know, when I started at Dartmouth, I thought, oh, I'll try this engineering thing out, see how it goes. And as I got more and more in, deta- in depth with it and more and more classes, I realized I really did like it. I really, I enjoyed the, you know, the kind of like very logical focus. I enjoyed the practical focus. I enjoyed the theory. I liked the projects. And I said, I, give me more, you know, I, I, I want to do more of this. And so then after, you know, my, my last year there, I was looking around to say, okay, I really think I do want to get a higher level degree. I want to go, I want to, you know, learn more about all these different aspects. I realized as I went, there's so much in engineering and I had just really scraped the surface. So I said, all right, I want to spend more time doing this. And when I started looking around, um, I had a very specific interest. I was really interested in knee injuries. So like I said, I played ultimate Frisbee for, for the last four years. My team went to nationals twice. We were, you know, very, very focused on, uh, on Frisbee. And I had noticed that a lot of my teammates were getting uh, anterior cruciate ligament or ACL injuries. And mm-hmm. that's a, it's a very common knee injury um, in Frisbee, as well as in like soccer and basketball, it happens all alone. Nobody gets hit. It's called a non-contact injury. You're just running down the court or the field. You make a quick sudden turn and your knee just collapses. And there goes your ACL. And it's a really devastating injury for a young athlete. It's a very long recovery. And you, there's sometimes it, it's hard to go back to hundred percent afterwards. And I was really interested in saying, okay, what's, what's, why is this injury so devastating? How can we possibly do something to, to fix this injury? And so when I was looking for, you know, focuses for my, my PhD, I found a lab at Stanford that was focusing a biomechanics lab. So looking at the body, like a mechanical system. And I, they, one of the things that they were focused on was ACL injuries, both pre-injury and post-injury, looking at improving the surgical techniques, improving the conservative treatment, looking at the long-term effects. And so to me, it was just like this thing, you know, the, the love, 
love I have for my, my schooling and the studies and this personal interest I have from, you know, being an athlete and seeing this injury happen, can I can merge them to, to in a, an entire research field and they'll pay me to do it. This is like, you know, a dream come true. So I, I and it was and it was at Stanford, even better. It was in California, which is one of the meccas for ultimate and it's super warm and I wouldn't have to freeze, you know, freeze all winter long. So uh, I kept my fingers crossed for a long time that Stanford would let me in. And then when I when I got the acceptance letter, it took me about five minutes to decide. And I was I was off to the West Coast. So did you build this product, this the the knee injury predictive wearable type thing? Yeah. So when I was, so in my PhD program, I focused on trying to understand what the root causes of the injury are. And it turns out that when you move and when you, particularly when you jump in specific ways, you can put yourself more at risk for injury, particularly if you land with your knees very straight. So very, very straight legged and you land very upright in a kind of in a stiff position with your knees kind of going inwards, that all puts a lot of stress on that one ligament in your knee because it moves the bones and the muscles in such a way that the ligament ends up taking all of the force of the body. And so what, what you need to do is you need to identify the people that do these kind of movements and jump and move in these kind of ways before they get the injury to give them extra training to basically say, no, we need to, we need to change the way you're moving. We need to change your biomechanics. You need to bend your knees more when you're landing. You need to do leg strengthening exercises to get your quads really strong, get your hamstrings really strong. So you can land. I like to say LeBron James will never have an ACL injury because the guy lands like a cat. He's like the most amazing, amazing biomechanics. You watch him land after the basketball. He lands in that very light cat-like movement. Beautiful. No ACL injuries. And so you were uh, uh, early to the use of wearables, right? Yeah. And so that was, so, so my thinking was, all right, well, how can we identify people that are at risk for knee injuries before they happen? And so the answer, you know, in research had been bring them into a gate lab, which really isn't a, you know, that's not a long-term answer of screening lots of people. It's very intensive. There's only a few gate labs in the country. So my thinking was, okay, what can we can do to measure movement outside of the gate lab. And at that time, wearables were just starting to come on the scene. You know, they were really being used in things like model airplanes and other, you know, fairly, fairly esoteric um, uses, but they were starting to get more use in, in human movement. And so I started saying, okay, well, we can use these wearable sensors to measure how people are moving. And then we can, by measuring how they're moving, we can estimate which people are at risk for having an ACL injury before it occurs. Wow. And did you, pro would you able to productize it so it could be used commercially? I tried. <laughs> we tried very hard. Um, so the, the result of my PhD thesis was uh, this wearable personal trainer that would identify when you were landing in this at-risk position with your knees very straight and your body upright, and then give you, give you an alert to say, hey, you're, you're landing poorly. This is how you need to change your motion. And so we went through, you know, trying with the uh, the Stanford Patent Office to patent it and then, you know, looking around to see if there's going to be a startup on this. But um, the postdoc I was working with really, really wanted to be a professor. And so he wasn't interested in kind of taking this a little bit further. He wanted to go back to Switzerland and start up his own lab and be a professor. And so I couldn't convince him to stay the, the Silicon Valley bootstrap kind of way. So it uh, unfortunately a, didn't end up working out. That's a but, shame because uh, uh, they're so, you know, they have so much at Berkeley around or at Stanford, excuse me. Um, Freudian slip uh, so much at Stanford around um, you know the intersection of, of medicine and technology I know I know and we had you know there was grants we could have written but you know what you gotta and now there's just... companies like whoop that are doing this kind of thing mm -hmm. you know I, I really am so psyched to move on to um, some of, the, of your actual, like, uh, you know, your tech jobs and your, and your and then your later work. But I, I want just one aspect of the Stanford I really wanted to just spend a minute or two on, because, again, it really struck me, perhaps as the uh, 
dad of three girls. You said that a key component of your PhD experience was a tight group of women you hung out with. You call them like sort of like your posse. Tell mm-hmm. us about it. I thought that was really striking. So obviously the Stanford engineering program and ME is, is big and there weren't that many women. You know, we probably had maybe 15% or so. But what I found out is that the women that go are amazing, amazing, just really talented women. And so what we did is we basically formed a kind of a study group pod where we would go, we would take all the same classes, we would study together, we do our homework together, we go to office hours together, and we really helped each other through the whole program. I mean, I would... I, I only took control theory because the rest of them were also taking control theory, even though I didn't think I really wanted to take control theory, but I didn't want to take a class without them. I didn't want to do it by <laughs> myself and they were all taking control theory. So I said, all right, I'll take control theory. And it turns out I love it. Like I thought it was one of the coolest classes I took, which I never would have done without, uh, without kind of wanting to stay with my posse. But I think, you know, again, engineering is such a collaborative a collaborative program. And I don't, you know, maybe the guys would have, maybe they did it on their own, but the women were very focused on like, Hey, we all want to do well. Let's all work together and kind of like lift each other up and help each other out through this whole thing. And then we all succeed. Do you think that there are gender differences? I mean, I, I don't know how anyone can answer this in terms of approaching engineering as collaborative versus individual contributor mindset. I don't know. I mean, like, again, I, obviously I worked with men all throughout because obviously, they were always yeah, on my yeah. projects team and stuff like that. Um, I think sometimes that there's a little bit more of a competitive streak there where it's like, OK, well, I really want to do well and I want to be the one that succeeds. But in engineering, it's rarely it's rarely individual. You know, there's too many people on projects. There's too many people who know, know different aspects. I think the most successful engineers learn early on that working together gets you all like, you know, a, what's a a rising tide lifts all boats, you know? And I think the women particularly, because we are a bit of a smaller group, learn that really fast to be like, hey, if we all, if we all, if one succeeds, we all succeed. So it was a very, a very collaborative community environment. Uh, but I have to tell you, those women were on it. When I was an undergrad, I would start doing my problem sets like maybe one or two nights before they were due. And sometimes would pull some very late nights, you know, the night before they were due. These women were like the problem sets were handed out and we started working on it the next day. You know, there was no delay. They're like, And I, I remember asking them, like, don't you want to wait? We have like two weeks on this. And they said, no, no, no. We have we need to have time to go to office hours to make sure that we can ask the questions so that we know it before the end. Yes, that's that's that absolutely such, right. That's, that's, that's that very... sounds like such great collaborative uh, learning. Um, So just to really jump forward. I know after you graduated, you spent a couple of years with your husband in, in, in Israel, did a postdoc in biorobotics, came back to the U.S., did a couple of jobs. I, actually, this is interesting, where you thought about what you wanted to do. You applied to a startup in Boston and then immediately regretted the decision. What was the deal? Well, you know, sometimes when you've done you've done a particular field for a long time, you want to say, OK, I want to try something new. So I've done a lot. I, You know, my Ph.D. was focused very heavily on wearables. And then after that, I decided, OK, let's try a little bit for robotics. You know, like robotics seemed, again, this very exciting and disciplinary area, up and coming, you know, lots of interesting engineering. And so I did my postdoc. It was kind of half between wearables and half between robotics. And then I applied for a robotics job when I came back to when I came back to Boston. And I have to say the people at the job were amazing. You know, like the, the people I met were great. They're still some of my closest friends, you know, really, really, really smart people. But I realized when I got back to Boston that the robotics field is is hard. You know, it's just a hard field to make, you know, actual products in. There's a lot of, you know, exploratory research, a lot of, you know, 
like um, pick and place things for warehouses and things like that. But the, the field is just, it's, it's got a lot of real big challenges that technolo- technologically we're still figuring out. You know, we're still trying to, to solve a lot of the robotics problems. And it was, it's really hard getting, uh, getting advancement in the field because of some of the, the massive difficulties. And I kind of realized at the time that I really did like wearables. You know, it's, uh, I, I, I sort of missed the field. The whole field was starting to get really big. It was going into healthcare. There was all these really cool opportunities. I was kind of looking at the side saying like, wait, wait, I thought, Maybe is that that is what I want to do, you know. So you did that then. So then you did some urgent networking. You wound up at then a at an early digital health company, MC10. It seems like that was kind of the, in a sense, I guess you're the platonic ideal of a hardcore VC-backed growth-focused uh, company. What what was your impression of that experience? Aspects you liked and didn't like? Yeah. So you know, coming from Silicon Valley, I knew. I'd had a lot of exposure to different startups, like early stage startups, really, you know, hard driving startups. And I hadn't at the, you know, right when I was coming out of my PhD, I had some other experiences I'd wanted to, to take, but this was a chance at MC10 to really take a team that was, that was, you know, a very strong team of very strong software engineers, very strong algorithm designers who are all focused on that single goal. You know, we're going to get, this is our one product. We're going to get, I got to get our one product out the door. We're going to make it through to completion, you know? And that was one of the, the first times I'd had, like the, an entire startup company focused on the singular goal of, for us, it was getting an FDA approved medical device that could be then be used in clinical trials. And so in the entire time I was there, we really focused, you know, solely on getting this one device all the way through to completion, you know, finishing the design, hardening the do- design, getting the software done, getting the algorithms done, testing them, hardening them, getting them production ready, you know, again, going through the entire FDA process, right? Getting the, getting the FDA, you know, doing all the testing required for the FDA, FDA, meeting all the requirements, doing all the regulatory, doing the submission, everything that, you know, to get it to the end line of this is an FDA cleared product. And so it was one of those, those experiences where the, the entire team's clicking and everybody's moving and we all have one goal. And it was really exciting, you know, coming to work every day, having the, the whole team work together and like focusing on that goal. And that was the, that was kind of the first time that I'd, I'd done that in a small startup experience. So it was really great to have that experience and really see how it works and how the team goes and, you know, and again, that shared group experience, right? That's so, so common and so critical to engineering. I remember that company really well. And, um, you know, I was an investor looking at companies like that at the time. And I felt like it was maybe a little too far ahead of its time. It didn't quite hit the market cycle right. You know, people really weren't ready for things that measured biometrics for medical purposes. They had some luck, I think, with was Nike or one of the shoe companies, but some more for sports. And I, so I don't, did it ever really get off the ground? I don't, I don't know. We got the product and it got FDA approved, which I was yeah. very proud about because the algorithms were, you know, that was under my purview and I was very concerned about the yeah. algorithms passing the FDA. So I was super happy about that. Um, unfortunately, the product was designed, I would say, more from an engineering standpoint rather than like a clinical trials standpoint, which, again, you know, knowing what I know now, I would have gone back and changed a lot of different things. And I don't think that was it wasn't like it was just we didn't know what we didn't know. You know, yeah. we, we we made the product that we thought was needed, but what was actually needed was slightly different. And so with a couple of design tweaks, I think it could have really, could really be a very, you know, a really amazing In what way for... was it, did you want, should you have, what would you have done differently? Like, would you yeah. have made it more rigorous or more like uh, consumer? Customer centricity. 
Yeah, I'd go, I'd back it up with the rigor and make it more consumer focused. So one of the biggest issues that is so we pack so many, of... <laughs> well, we, we packed so many sensors and so much tech into the, into the physical hardware that it only had, which was this amazing flexible patch, like beautiful mm -hmm. flexible patch. It's still, I think, amazing hardware. It only had about a 24 hour battery life. And being in pharma now, the, the logistical hurdle of getting patients to swap out sensors every 24 hours, especially ones that are sticky, it's so hard. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's this is operational hurdle that the, the patients just don't want to do. And if they do do it, they only do it for a few days, you know. So what I've learned from pharma is that being in pharma is that if you could back off the tech, but make it easier for the subjects, you're more likely to get it into your clinical trial because we, the worst device is the device we put in that the subjects never wear. And the best device is the simplest, most passive devices that subjects wear all the time. And we have great compliance. With. It's fascinating. It's, it's funny, just like this past, uh, relatively recently, I wrote a, a bulwark piece actually about the, including about the importance of it. It was in the context of vaccinations, um, but about the importance of adherence and how and the role of that's played um, in, in a range of pharma different uh, uh, contexts. Um, totally underappreciated, but how something that you take once a day, for example, is so much better adherence than things that you have to take many times. And it's mm -hmm. going to be a big issue with the vaccine if you have to come back for it. Um, okay, but I want to... So, you were doing all this tech stuff and then you, you took a job uh, first at Biogen and then um, more recently at Takeda where you're a digital strategy leader at the company's esteemed data science institute and you're sort of a digital health, pharma digital health mocker, I would say. You're on the speaking circuit, you're, you're, you're in demand, you're, you're just like you see, which it, you said came from the fact that you kept saying yes, which I thought was really interesting. <laughs> what I'm most interested in, in is your maybe your gestalt take on where pharma is with wearables in digital health and what you are seeing. It seems like it's evolved from sort of a curiosity to something that people, especially in the context of the pandemic, but even more generally, really want to find a way to use, but it's, it's still struggling a little bit. Like, tell, tell me where you see it the value proposition has really been demonstrated for pharma. You know, like people people in the clinical trials, they see the value of the data they're getting, particularly at the at-home measurements. You know, this is data that we've never had before. We don't, like we don't what? know. Give us, like, make it concrete for me. Like what? Sleep. Sleep is the biggest one, right? A lot of disorders that we study have disrupted sleep, right? But measuring sleep, particularly measuring sleep longitudinally over, you know, in the home environment is very challenging yeah. because we don't have that kind of measurement. Is it reliable? It depends. It depends what you're looking for. Like, you know, not I mean, for an endpoint, you, you, FDA is not going to approve something, are they based on, you know, some wearables assessment of it? Are you, I mean, it's not going to well, be as like of today, they won't. But, you know, I mean, I think that that's and this is where I was going to say where pharma is going. Right. But we know that disturbed sleep really both impacts disease state and also can really show progression. And so a lot of the wearables now that can that can show that they can show the time you went to bed, the time you woke up, if you got up in the middle of the night, even though those are pretty simple metrics, they're very powerful for for understanding about our subjects because we've never had that data before. And if you ask somebody, well, how are you sleeping? They really think back like the last week. And if they had any, you know, if they stayed up late one night reading or something like that it's very it's very variable but if we can look at them longitudinally over the course of the trial we can pick up these trends that we wouldn't have picked up from the traditional metrics and the traditional sleep diaries and things like that so mm -hmm. i think in, particularly in sleep pharma is really starting to see the the benefit of the wearables because they're giving them data that's very salient and very important to them that we've never had before 
I think also in some of the categories where the drug is directly targeting, for instance, the heart, there's a lot of wearables that can focus on, you know, heart related metrics that I think, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I think the interesting challenge for pharma, I'd be curious to do your take on this is that the likely scenario here is that if you have wearables associated with drugs, you're going to find out who's best served by those drugs. And it's going to be a smaller number of people than they hope to sell the product to. So it's sort of a built-in conundrum there. Yeah, there is. Um, I would also say, as an aside, um, like we were talking about, adherence and compliance can really be be measured with uh, with wearables too. You yeah. know, that's another benefit that you could look at to say, like, True. okay, are people taking their medication and stuff? Not it's not always the traditional ones, but you could use these at home measures to really track adherence, compliance, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Just to push back briefly on Lisa's comment, um, <laughs> the uh, no, because I've been writing about this forever and thinking about it. Um, I mean, essentially, this is the whole precision medicine thing where people are, are, have a view that farmer is not going to want to have a more, uh, gonna, you're saying they're not going to want to niche the market. But if they actually had a way to identify what patients are going to actually respond and identify that subgroup, the studies that you need to do are so much smaller, your effect sizes are proportionately larger, and your path to approval is so much quicker that um, uh, I think that there's there, there's huge compelling uh, drive uh, uh, for that. Um, so what are you most excited about? Just like for a last question, Ariel, what are you most excited about going forward about where digital is in pharma from what you're seeing? So kind of based on what you said, as you said, oh, the FDA is never going to approve this. I think that is true right this second. But I think that there is a huge push coming to say to the FDA and just massively accelerated by COVID to say, all right, we need to start looking at more non-traditional endpoints, newer endpoints. Things are going to give us different data, but ones that really focus on the FDA's, how the patient feels, functions and survives. You know, all of those things can be measured particularly well with with wearable devices. So I think that what we're going to start to see in the future is larger banding together of, you know, consortiums of pharma or, you know, vendors and pharma together to say, hey, we really think we have new endpoints here and we have the data to back it up and to say that these affect how the patient's feels or functions. And we think that you should consider these in, you know, at the first side by side with the traditional endpoints and then maybe in the in, you know in the more distant future in lieu of the traditional endpoints to say let's take a more digital approach let's have these digital endpoints and these you know biomarkers that are built on devices and they don't have they can be device agnostic you know it can be it right. can be based on anything it's- that's the critical thing though i mean i think actually in general fda is not the i mean fda has been no. really embracing i fully agree with that i agree yeah. i think the, the issue more is it's wanting though, but rigorous data versus recreational data. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, right. as you know, better than anybody, better than anybody, I'm certainly not going to sit around device planning stuff to you. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, what some might get from, you know, some, what a watch reports as sleep might be different than what might be more rigorously measured, you know, in a way that you would find, frankly, as a scientist acceptable, I would think. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's uh, there's two things with that. Number one is there's there's accuracy and there's overall trends. You know, so one of the things I say is like, you know, we could be these devices a lot of times won't be as 100 percent accurate as the gold standard. But if they can do 
80% accuracy, but in a home environment over a long period of time, we'll pick up the trend, you know, we'll pick up the, the general movement of where the patient is going. And that may be, that may be strong enough to show, you know, the, the change to say, okay, well, this person used to have three night awakenings. And now by the end of the study, they only have one night awakening, and it's pretty consistent, even though every once in a while, they'll have a three night awakening night, you know? So we're looking at, we want to, I think there's a trade-off between use again, that goes back to that usability versus that technical, technical accuracy. If we start getting more usable data and we get, you know, the stronger, the stronger support behind usable data, that'll really bring us forward to, to make a good argument to say, this is an, this is important to the patient. And because it, it, again, it all comes back to the patient, you know, how, do, how can we better serve the patient? So what's the, oh, what's heard. the magic bullet digital health product pharma's looking for? Oh, geez. <laughs> Um, we want something that has a really long battery life, right? We don't want to have to change it or charge it or switch it around a lot because operationally that's very challenging. Um, we want to be able to know the compliance for, for the patient, right? We don't want to have anything that it's just open loop where we give it to them and they come back in six weeks and we say, okay, it's great. You know, we want to have something that's giving us information back the whole time so we can know if the patients are using it, what they're doing, et cetera. Um, we want it to be as passive for the patient as possible. You know, it needs to require the least amount of work from them. Like if they, they have to click on something, like it can automatically detect the things it needs to detect. They don't have to click on too much. They don't have to answer too much. Maybe if you do need an ePro, it comes up on like a watch or something that's really quick that they can just say, yes, yes, yes. You know, it needs to be as light touch as possible. So it integrates well into their, their life. And it has to be something that, that gives them something back. You know, it can't be a brick that gives them no information where they see nothing and it's just like, why am I wearing this? What's the, what's the, val what's the value to me? It has to, give, it has to give value to the patients so they feel that, that they're citizen scientists. You know, they're part of the, they're, they're part of the program. They're, they're, we're all working together to solve this disease state and they're doing their part by participating in this clinical trial. Sounds That's easy. So awesome. And then personally, it works on both Android and iOS. I really hate when somebody <laughs> picks only one or the other platform. But make it make it make it cross platform. I don't want to be stuck in one at one uh, one ecosystem. Right, you're so awesome. The industry is so fortunate to have someone like you um, take their talents there. And well, I think uh, you I, know one of the reasons that I switched, and it was a hard switch to make because I really did. I, I really think. do like tech. You know, I, I think tech is you know that's where I grew up. That's where I learned. It's really such an amazing thing. But pharma has the data. You know, like when you when you talk about the data, you're only as good as your data. And everybody will tell you that, you know, like any of your products, all your machine learning, everything like that. You're only as good as the data that underlies what you're doing. And pharma is where the data is for these for these disease states. You know, like we're we are the ones that do the trials. We're the ones that collect the subjects. We're the ones that rigorously measure them. You know, this is where the data lives. And so mm -hmm. I know a lot of people kind of think of pharma as a little maybe too consumer based, not as research based, doesn't have as much, you know, but th this is where the data is, you know, this is where you can find 300 subjects with a rare disease that, you know, have all been measured for two years straight, and you can do something with it to really say, okay, how can we focus and try and try and help these patients and help this disease state. Uh, and so that's kind of really what drew me to it. Plus, I find all the people are really great. You know, it's a good, uh, it's a, I, I, you know, I like working with the, the people. I like the environment. You know, I'm learning a lot, which is a big thing. You know, a lot of people to learn from. Always, always good to stretch yourself, you know. That, that's so awesome. Um, we're so appreciative of you joining us on the, uh, on the show today and sharing your insights with us. Great to meet you, Ariel. Yeah, great to meet you as well. All right. All right. Well, is uh, she awesome or what? 
Uh, she's great. I love her energy. And I really like that sentiment um, of hers about following your passion, but not being wed to it completely. So you don't miss, you know, miss things that might come to the side and change your point Perfectly. of view. I, I think yeah, that's yeah, very, you know, Her career is good. fascinating and, um, you know, the perspective. And I certainly do love the idea that the future of pharma may look more like like people like her in the perspective that she's bringing so that's fantastic very much very much so please remember to rate us on your podcast app leave a comment and help others discover the show you can follow david's writing at astounding health tech at the timmerman report the bulwark and his occasional book reviews in the wall street journal and you can follow the inimitable lisa sunan at venturevalkyrie.com we're grateful to manat health for sponsoring today's episode of tectonics Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and continues to be recorded in quarantine. Be well. Stay masked.